So we turn to John's Gospel, the 18th chapter. Stand together for the reading of God's Word, John 18, verse 28 through 38. This is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your own law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put him anyone to death, but that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, calling Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking this for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, I, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at Thus far, the word of God, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, we do ask now that you would bless that which you have appointed, the foolishness of preaching according to men, and yet by your plan it is the way in which you demonstrate your great power. Lord, bless us in your presence to hear the word. Blessed to go forth with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, and likewise by the Spirit that it would work it in our heart that might bear fruit for your glory. Above all, may Christ be magnified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know how much any one of you pays attention to the news or the headline. There's so many ways to get our news today. You can watch the headline news programs if you're so inclined. There's 24-hour news channels. There's ways to get it through social media, emails, on and on and on, ad nauseum even. We can hear so much news. But when you do so, when you take in the news at whatever level you do or from whatever source, there's something that should jump out to you as the people of God. There is a cosmic conflict underway. There is still a raging within the world. Almost four years ago, I was preaching from this pulpit from the book of Genesis, April of 2018, we heard God declare from Genesis 3.15, the greatest conflict of all history. 
This conflict is between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, or the seed of Satan, one and the same. Satan would eventually bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but he, Satan, would discover that by so doing, his head, that is Satan's head, would be crushed. Moses then went on to record the first battle in that cosmic war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent when Cain rose up and murdered his own brother, Abel. Satan no doubt thought he had bested God, for it was clear that Abel was walking according to the seed of the woman in righteousness by faith looking to the promises of God, whereas Cain did not. Thus God accepted Abel, but not Cain. So he thought that with the destruction of Abel, he would have won a victory over God in this contest. But God gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth. And as we moved on through the book of Genesis, we saw that there was a godly line of Seth. And that led eventually to Noah, and then to one of Noah's sons, and then eventually to the man Abram, whom God called out of the world and made great promises to him, a man who later be called, was to be called Abraham. But before the flood, the conflict rose to such a degree that God has Moses record that men were only evil always, continually. But Moses, I mean Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so God, in that great cosmic battle, sent a worldwide flood and he destroyed all of humanity except for eight souls that he preserved in a, a wooden ship, the ark. It should have been a strong picture to Satan, just how puny his attempts might be. He may have subverted the whole of the human race, and yet God punished and destroyed all those and preserved Noah. Well, in time, God raised up Abram, whom he then promised to him, calling him them Abraham, that he would have a seed. Paul points out in Galatians that we should understand a seed. Not seeds, not the nation of Israel, but a seed, one from Abraham, one from Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, from Jacob's son, Judah. That seed. And indeed, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had 12 sons. One is faithful and respected by his father. But his brother hate him, and they conspired to put him to death. Speaking, of course, of Joseph, we saw this, whose very name means the same as Jesus, Savior. He was then sold by his brothers for the price of a slave, even as we've seen Judas do with the Savior, Christ the Lord. But God used the evil of Joseph's brothers for goods. He ends up sending Joseph down into Israel to preserve the seed of the woman, preserving the whole of the nation, but particularly the line of Judah that ultimately David will come from and eventually the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we saw in the book of Genesis this cosmic battle between the two seeds, the line of the seed of the woman and the line of the seed of the serpent. We must never forget that that battle continues on. We come to John's account of the seed of the serpent seeking to destroy the one who is the seed of the woman, even Jesus of Nazareth. We see it playing out here in Pilate's courtroom, the praetorium, as the New King James refers to it. What we see here is the escalation of that great cosmic struggle to the point when the seed of the woman will have his heel bruised. Pilate looked on Jesus, and all he saw was a humble, 
his estimation, a simple, ordinary, inconsequential man. But John has portrayed for us that Jesus is the God's man. And as we said, beginning in chapter 18, we see Jesus in this situation in dignity and the manifestation of his deity. For John's purpose is that we should understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that so believing we would have life in his name. So the theme this morning is this great cosmic struggle of the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. And it came to the great clash where we see the heel of Jesus to be bruised, but the head of Satan crushed. Now, in your worship, guys, you have four main points. Um, I've assumed or subsumed, absorbed, maybe is a better word, the fourth point into the third. So we will have three, the clash of two kingdoms. We'll consider the way that the world operates. And finally, we will see the triumph of truth. I'm indebted to my friend and fellow com- another commentator, Rick- Richard Phillips, for some of the material in this sermon. We begin then with the clash of the two kingdoms. In the 4th century, Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you prefer to pronounce it, of Hippo, wrote one of the greatest books of history, The City of God. Augustine writes that there are two cities among men, the city of man and the city of God. He says, Two societies have issued from two kinds of love. Worldly society has flowered from a selfish love, which dared to despise even God, whereas the communion of the saints is rooted in a love for God. The city of man seeks the praise of men, whereas the height of glory for the other is to hear God in the witness of the conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own boasting. The other says to God, Thou art my glory. Thou liftest up my head. As believers, we live in a world where we really are in both realms, the city of God and the city of man. We live under some form of government, the city of man, and we must render to Caesar those things that belong to Caesar. But of all, we must remember to render to God what belongs to God. Jesus himself gave this instruction. And we see here in this context in the 18th chapter, the city of man at work with, with a man's government, indeed a government Appointed by God, as Paul writes, that that there's no government but that God has appointed it, and thus we're to show our respect to the government. In John 18, we see the city man when they bring Jesus to Pilate's palace or the praetorium. John does not record the the, uh, trial that took place in the Sanhedrin. If you look into your scriptures, we read verse 28. It's just, we we were last in John's account, we saw Jesus in Annas' palace, the high priest, seeing the one who's to be the sacrifice for sin, and then approving of him. And then he's taken away. And he was taken to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, and a trial took place. The other gospel writers record that. John tells us, and they led Jesus from Caiaphas. He just skips over that. And so we find that Jesus is now in the praetorium, and it was in the early morning. You know exactly what time, 2 or 3 in the morning, maybe a little later, 4 or 5 in the morning, probably more like that part of the early uh, hour, uh, morning hours, 4 or 5, coming towards the dawning of the sun. This trial that took place before the Sanhedrin was a a sham trial. 
We saw that even with the account that took place in Annas' household, that it was already concluded that Jesus should die. Even that unrighteous man of Caiaphas, God used him to proclaim that it was better that one man should die for the people. And indeed, Jesus would do so. In the context of the trial before the Sanhedrin, they, they presented false witnesses, you know, each making an accusation, trying to confirm by two witnesses some accusation, some charge against Jesus, so they could have this appearance of justice that he should be put to death. And yet the witnesses couldn't agree. One said one thing and another said another. And then Caiaphas pressed Jesus and asked him if indeed he is the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus bore witness to that truth, for that was the truth. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And with that testimony, the Sanhedrin declared he should die for blasphemy. Now, if he was lying, that would have been a just sentence. But this is no ordinary man. This is the God-man. This is God come in the flesh. And indeed, he was and he is the Son of God, the Christ, who came into the world to save sinners. But the Jews at this point, wanting to put him to death, they didn't have authority. Remember, Jews, the Jews, the Jewish nation Israel is occupied by Rome. And Rome, the Roman government has determined just what and how far this authority would go. And so the Sanhedrin, in, in some sense, is ruling over the people of Israel to a point, to the direction of Pilate, the Roman governor, to his satisfaction, giving them some latitude, but only so far. And one of the things he told them they could not do is you did not have the authority to determine that someone be put to death for a crime. Pilate is uh, the very representative of the city of man. Or to go back where we begin, he is the picture of the seed of the serpent. But not him alone. The, the, the uh, Sanhedrin also are in the service of Satan. They are opposed to God and God's plan. And here they are as serving Satan as the very means by which the Satan, by which Satan will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Pilate has his power in the force of arms. Pilate has legions of Roman soldiers at his disposal to enforce his law. Uh, we know more about Pilate as a governor more than most of the Roman governors. Um, he had the authority to impose taxes on the people in order to pay for the troops and to support his lavish lifestyle. And indeed, he had one. We can consider in modern terms, Pilate had his relationships, had his alliances with the rich and the famous. He controlled information. He controlled business. He controlled the commerce and the economy. He had pretty much universal control of everything within his realm. And that's how the city of man operates, with might. Might makes right. We see his power on display here when the religious leaders, they bring Jesus to him in the early hours of the morning at the praetorium. In verse 29, we read, Pilate then went out to them and said to them, What accusation do you bring against this man? The Jews had expected to bring Jesus to him, and they wanted him just to swiftly agree with their verdict that this man should die. But Pilate is going to proceed according to his own terms. And so he asks, this is the formality of a trial. What's the accusation that you make against this man? Pilate's question makes it clear that things are going to be more on his terms, and a swift decision is not likely. And so then the Jews answer, look at verse 30. They answered him and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. 
you know, the kind of thing, you know, just trust us. We didn't come out here in the early hours of the morning just to trouble you, uh, to, to tax your patience. You know, we, we brought him because we think this is really legitimate. You know, just, just trust us. Pilate didn't. If you look at verse 31, he said, uh, they answered him, he said, if you were an evildoer, I'm sorry, verse 31, then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. He says, you know, why have you troubled me with this? You, you don't have an accusation. You just, you want me to agree with you? Go try him according to your own law. But then the Jews reveal, or reveal what's in their desire. Therefore, the Jews said to him, this is also verse 31, it is not lawful for us, for us to put anyone to death. That's what they want. That's where they've come. That's what they come seeking. That's why they're disturbed Pilate in the wee hours of the morning, because they want this man to be put to death. And yet they still have not given him a charge. Now, under the Old Testament law, a blasphemer was to be stoned. That's what God commanded through Moses. But the Romans had taken away the authority to punish by death. And so John tells his readers what is at work here. Look then at verse 32. Well, let's pick up at the end of verse 31. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus was not going to be stoned. Jesus was going to be crucified on a Roman cross. As Paul quotes from the Old Testament, I think it's Leviticus, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus, who was the curse for, took the curse for our sin, was to be hung on a tree. Well, it was the Romans that crucified criminals on a wooden cross, that is, a tree. He wasn't to be stoned. Pilate says, take him and deal with him yourself. They said, no. And here we see, even as Christ had spoke prophetically, by what manner of death he would die. He was to be crucified at the hands of the Gentiles, fulfilling prophecies that were given throughout the Old Testament. Pilate turns from the Jews, and he returns back into the palace. It's interesting. You have him going out to the Jews. They won't come in, John tells us, because they, they want to keep themselves pure so they can keep the Passover. And so he goes back inside to where Jesus is. Pilate gets right to the point in verse 33. Look at what he says to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, in John's account, I think John assumes that we're familiar with the other gospel accounts because what was happening when Pilate was still out with the people, they told him that he said he was a king. And so he comes in and asks him directly. Pilate wants to know, is this true? In verse 34, Jesus answers him with a question himself. And that gives the uh, um, way Jesus presses him with a question, reveals the fact the Pilate's been told something else. Jesus answered him, Are you speaking this for yourself, speaking for yourself about this, the question, Are you the king of the Jews? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Now, what this really gets at, that Jesus would have it established. If Pilate himself is saying that Jesus is seeking to establish a kingdom in opposition to Caesar, Jesus' answer would be no. That's not the truth. But if on the other hand, the accusation is from the Jews, that is from their perspective, that he says he's the Messiah, the king sent by God, then the answer is yes. And, then Jesus, and Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. He is the promised king that would come from David's line, who would sit on David's throne forever and ever. 
so Jesus isn't impertinent. He wants clarity before he answers the question. Is this, are you asking for yourself as Rome's representative? Do you think I'm a king rising up in insurrection against you? That's not the case. Is what he says in just a little bit will make that even more clear. But if indeed it's the accusation from the Jews, then yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm David's greater son. I have come to establish a kingdom that will endure forever. Pilate understand, understood the distinction because he says, am I a Jew? He's like, what does this have to do with me? This is not something that concerns me. He only cared if Jesus was a threat to Caesar's kingdom, and he was not, as his pronouncement later on makes clear. And so Pilate says to him, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He wants to cut through it because the, 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 the uh, religious leaders of the Jews, they're, they're filled with confusion and uh, I'm trying to use a word you children can understand. I want to use subterfuge, but I, they're not being right, forthright. They're not being clear. Just like sometimes you children, you know, you've done something, and your your mother will say, "Okay, what's going on?" And you you just kind of wiggle around it. You won't say right out what happened. That's the way the Jews are having. They're trying to hover up the truth, and so Pilate wants to know the truth. He says, "What have you done? Just tell me. Why are you here? And how does Jesus reply?" And it's back to the matter of his kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus is saying, yes, I'm a king. But I'm a spiritual king. I'm a greater king than any king that has ever ruled and reigned on earth. I'm the king of heaven, the king of glory. we look at Jesus, we learn two things. He is a king. He may not look like one to Pilate. He has none of the glory of the earthly kings. There's no uh, retinue of aides and proper people. He displays none of that pomp. And he seems to have no worldly power. But Jesus makes a reference that he has servants. If indeed he was that kind of king, he has servants that would fight for him, the, the myriads of angels in heaven. But he's not come for this purpose, to overthrow the kingdoms of men, which is what the Jews and even the disciples expected him to do. Jesus has come to deal with a greater enemy. And it's back to Genesis 3.15. He has come to crush the head of the serpent. He has come to destroy sin and Satan, the death and the grave. He has come to fulfill all righteousness, that we who are unrighteous might have righteousness in him and life forevermore. His battle is far greater than the toppling of Rome and the exalting of the Jews. He has come to establish the kingdom of righteousness that is to all the nations forever and evermore. Just think about that. If Are you a king? This is how so many respond today. If they look to Jesus, and indeed people look at Jesus, they have this question about Jesus. Are you a king? And they, they look at him and they say, well, I'll grant he, he's a good man. He's, he's a moral example. He was a, a faithful teacher. But surely not a king. I don't owe him, owe him any allegiance. don't really need to pay him much attention or take him seriously. The trial that we see play out here is still played out in men's lives today. They hear of Jesus, and they dismiss him. This is not enough, though. Jesus responds to Pilate, 
Act uh, is something that not only Pilate must reckon with, but indeed all men and women, boys and girls must reckon, reckon with this. Pilate then says to him for clarity, are you a king then? Jesus has said that he has a kingdom. And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am, that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's what you and I must reckon with. Jesus is the king. This is why he came into the world, not as a worldly king, not as an earthly king, but he just came into the world to conquer the, conquer the greatest foe of all. The one who raised his ugly head back in the pristine garden of Eden, who came in calling into question the very word of God, Jesus has come in to overthrow that king. And we must not neglect this king Jesus. Indeed, it is most urgent that we all be subjects of this king, that we be brought into his kingdom through this work that he accomplished on the cross. No one dare dismiss Jesus as a mere spiritual king and one to be rejected. For Jesus rules over all the affairs of the life of men. Even as we were looking at Isaiah when God is proclaiming that you know, he, he sends forth his word and it is accomplished according to his plan. That he causes the rain and the snow to fall and to water the earth and for it to bring forth his abundance. This is King Jesus who does these things. He is the one who reigns on high. He is indeed a king to be reckoned with. The question is, is he the king in your heart? Not that is he your king over you. You dwell in his realm. You dwell in some sense under the city of God. But is the city of God within you? Is Christ within you? Has Christ worked in your heart that you are a new creature, that now you look to him as the Lord of your salvation and your only hope of glory in all eternity? Jesus must be reckoned with. His kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. And he holds the power of life and death in his hand. Indeed, on that great and terrible day, it will be him who is seated on the throne of judgment that all men from the beginning of time to the end shall stand before, and he will pass judgment. Therefore, he should be respected and feared. Jesus said in Matthew 10:28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Jesus is the one who has that authority. And so we see the Jews in collusion with Pilate. An alliance is being formed because they ultimately serve the same dark lord, the, the head of the kingdom of darkness, even Satan. He is their father. He's the father of lies, and they are liars, and they serve him. And they're colluding together. They're seeking to overthrow the seed of the woman and destroy him. But even in doing so, he wins the victory. Only one's going to triumph. Well, as we move on from this great conflict, we see these, these parties, how they operate. There's a worldview that's displayed. There, there's the values of the world that are on display. And here, this took place some almost 2,000 years ago, and we see uh, these marks, these distinguishing features of the kingdom of dark, excuse me, the kingdom of darkness that are still at play today. There's two very different worldviews or value systems. 
both the Jews and Pilate show what the world values and how it operates. The first we see is that the world is pragmatic. Or to put it another way, the ends justifies the means. And I've determined that this is what I want for the outcome. Anything I can do, anything I need to do to get to that end is fine. Do we not see that in our day? Is not this value highly valued? Pragmatism, the end justifies the means. We're thought strange and out of step when we act on the basis of principle. God's truth. Look at the text. The Jews think that they could get quickly what they wanted. But Pilate, he says, no, his conduct's apparent. We're going to have a trial. What's the charge? And so they shift their tactics. The other Gospels record the shift. that makes it clear they're pragmatists. Luke records they accused him. Well, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding the paying of taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is a king. That's where they told him. Luke records that. But they wanted him, they brought him because in their mind he had blasphemed, making himself out to be God, which was a truth that they could not accept. And so they, they can't make that charge of Caesar. That's not going to work. And so they say, well, he's perverting the nation. He's forbidding the paying of taxes to Caesar. Was that true? It was a lie. They're pragmatists. Whatever they need to do to get there, they're willing to try it. So here we see the sham trial that they had as the Sanhedrin. They're bringing the same falseness into what the trial before Pilate. Jesus had been challenged on this very issues about paying taxes. He says, show me one of the coins. Show me the denarius. He says, whose, whose image is this imprinted on it? Well, it's Caesar's. He said, well, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. What is, what is the image? Where is the image of God stamped? It's on you and I. We are the image bearers, and we are to render to God all our full of devotion and allegiance. Jesus wasn't subversive. He wasn't uh, forbidding the paying of taxes. He even sent Peter to catch a fish to take the coin so he could pay the temple tax, though he did not owe it because it was a tax for sinners. Jesus worked and cooperated. He obeyed the law. So they lied. They lied again and again. The Jews think that lying is expedient to get to the ends they want. Uh, Pilate wants to, to do a more formal trial, then we'll shift. We'll try something else. But what was Pilate's final verdict? You look at verse 38, the very last part of it. I find no fault in him at all. What are they going to do? Pilate said there's no fault in him. What are they going to do? They're desperate. This is a legal ruling. And so the, we go on, and we're going to deal with this more thoroughly. But if you go on to chapter 19, we see this pragmatism. They, they pivot. Pilate's not interested, so the Jews pivot again. Look at 19, verse 7. We see these two pivots. The Jews answered him, well, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Pilate was all the more afraid. And Pilate said, are you speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify him? And Jesus says, you have no power at all that it be given unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, the one who has delivered me to you is the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Here's the pivot. But the Jews cried out, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. So now they're accusing him of being a traitor for not giving them the justice they think that they deserve. And so they're just pragmatists. The ends justifies the means. 
in order to get what they want. Pilate's cautious in this process. We know why, because Matthew records for us in 2719 that while he was seated on the judgment seat in Praetorium, Jesus is before him, the Jews are outside, they won't come in. As he's seated there on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. She sent a message to her husband. She says, have nothing to do with this just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So, Pilate began well. He's conducting the trial. What are the charges? But then the Jews are pragmatists, and they shift and flex, and he does the same. Seeking to solve his problem, Pilate then turns to a custom. At the time of the feast, particularly the Passover feast, his custom was to release one of the prisoners. And so he says, who do you want me to release? Again, we'll deal with this more fully in a couple of weeks. But they, they demanded the release of Barabbas. Uh, an insurrectionist, a criminal, a murderer. And so they said, well, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? And now the Jews have brought the moment to what they want, and they demand that he be crucified. Ends justifies the means. Pilate had an angry crowd shouting for an injustice, and what he knew to be an injustice, but because of love for himself, he's motivated to give the people what they want, pragmatism. So when we read the headlines and we hear of political figures doing this sort of thing, and indeed they do, it's nothing new under the sun. This is the age-old battle. Though it's been settled at the cross, yet the kingdom of darkness is still warring, seeking to exert itself and exalt itself, still seeking to oppress and suppress the people of God, and still seeking to destroy the kingdom of God. But the good news is Christ reigns pragmatism. It's the way of the world. It must not be found amongst us. Well, there's a second worldly value that's displayed in the text. Relativism. Look at verse 37. Jesus explained to Pilate what his kingdom is like. Pilate said, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What a marvelous statement. Jesus is declaring, this is my purpose. I've come to display the truth, to be the truth. I've come to usher in the kingdom of God so that men can be brought out of the darkness and the lies and the deceit and the treachery of Satan that can be liberated from that and brought into the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ. What's Pilate's response? He's not in awe and wonder at such a statement. It's a cynic. And you hear the echoes of relativism. What is truth? What's truth? We see that also in our day. Sounds like the motto of our day. For a long time, our universities have taught, have taught students that there are no absolutes. Well, what is it we hear? Well, you got your truth, I got my truth. That may be truth for you, but it's not my truth. As if there's multiple truths. I think it's Francis Safer that coined the term talking about true truth in this culture of relativism where everybody wants to have their own truth. And you hear the cynicism, the relativism. We deal in today when students are, well not just students, people are afraid of being triggered if you tell them your truth, even the truth, the very truth that they need. 
They want their safe spaces, and they consider it an aggression if you speak the truth to them, even love out of concern for their souls. We should not be surprised. This is the hallmark of the kingdom of darkness, those who serve the seed, who are the seed of the serpent. But what are we to do? As Christians, we're told to live by the truth, walk by the truth, speak the truth. That is our standard. We live according to the truth of God's word, not according to the relativism of the world. But where did it all begin? It was the work of Satan in the garden, didn't it? Now he came into the garden. God's declared a truth. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan comes in and says, oh, come on. God doesn't really mean that. He knows if you eat of it, you're going to be wise like he is. He's keeping something back from you. Satan's lying. He's being treacherous and deceitful, seeking to lead them astray. Acting as though truth was negotiable. Satan questions God's trustworthiness. You hear that? Here's, here's the seed of the serpent, Pilate. Jesus has declared the truth to him. And Pilate says, what is truth? It should be no surprise to us when we get the same response from the world in our day. My dear friends, when you watch the news, you see these worldly values that work in the world around us. Pragmatism, relativism. They're as old as man, and they can produce a cluster of very dangerous and destructive fruit. Hypocrisy, injustice, and cruelty. And we see that play out as we move towards the cross from where we're at right now. We look at the Jews. We see these fruits of unrighteousness. They rushed in the dead of night to Pilate to condemn the sinless Son of God on trumped-up charges, and they multiplied their lies to achieve their goal. Pilate in his cynicism is like he just wants to throw up his hands. What's truth? What difference does it make? So bad about justice and show one of the cruelest events of history is about to be perpetrated. But my friends, sisters and brothers, this is why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to save sinners who are given over to pragmatism and relativism, who are bound up in deceit and treachery, who live lives of lies. He has come to deliver us out from that, to set us free from that bondage. And in order to do that, it was necessary that he go to the cross. That's the language of his heel being bruised because he's not going to be struck down. Yes, he was crucified, dead, and buried, but it was not possible that the grave should hold him because he is the Son of God and he's obeyed the will of the Father and the power of the Father gave him authority to lay down his life and take it up again. And thus he rose victorious in triumph that we should no longer be under the bondage of the ways of the world. We dare not be pragmatists. and We dare not live by lies. We're called to be of the truth. Our king is truth. And that brings us to the triumph of the truth. The third point, the triumph of the truth. Jesus is, in fact, a king. Even though Pilate could not see it, Jesus was different than Pilate, as different as night is from day, are these two men. Jesus' kingdom is the complete opposite of the kingdoms of this world. And for this reason, as subjects of this king, Jesus, we must never adopt the methods of men. Let it never be named among us that we're relatives, relativists or pragmatists. This same apostle, John, who wrote this gospel, wrote in his first letter, he warned all who belong to Jesus, do not love the world or the things, we could say, the ways of the world. We dare not love their practices. We dare not be pragmatists. We dare not 
give in to ends justifies the means. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, where we find this. Chapter 2, 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, the lust of the eyes, I'm sorry, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. Every day, a little closer, the world is passing away. And the lust of it, passing away. Pragmatism, relativism, lies, deceit, treachery, cruelty, passing away. This is not of the Father. This is not the Father's way. This is the way of the world. Passing away along with its lust. But he who does the will of God abides forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. Not to perish. The world's passing away. Don't be given over to the ways of the world. Children, even from a young age, make it your determination to, by the grace of God to be about the truth. If you've disobeyed, you've rebelled, you've done something wrong, tell the truth. Don't cover it up because it's easy to move from one lie to more lies. Jesus has called us to be about the truth. That's why we need life in him, for he is the truth. Jesus underwent that shame and suffering in order to bring us into the truth. Even as he came to bear witness to the truth, we've seen this throughout his gospel. John 14, 6, what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus came to save us and bring us into his Father's kingdom, a kingdom that is built on truth, that is the hallmark of it is truthfulness. But this truth cannot be discovered by men. All the systems of men, we live in a day of constant uh, scientific and technological advancements, always discovering, pushing further and further into the reaches of space and, and further and further into the atom and the structure, always discovering things. But you want to know something? With man's best scientific enterprise, all of his resources thrown out of it, man will never discover the truth. God reveals it. It's revealed in his word and by his son. To know the truth, we must listen to the God of glory. All the systems of men will never discover it. Truth must be revealed. For all truth is God's truth. And no truth exists apart from God. And that truth, Jesus Christ, came down to men as the Son of God. Emmanuel, God incarnate, he came into the world to save those bound in sin and lies and deceit. This is the truth that sets men free. When we dismiss Jesus and the claims of the gospel, when someone hears these things and replies with the scoffing remarks like Pilate, what is truth? Seems like a simple, relatively unimportant statement by the one who utters it with disdain. But my friends, that question must be answered. What is truth? Christ is truth. What is the way of life? It is in Christ and him alone. You cannot get to heaven 
based on your pragmatism, lies, deceit, and treachery. It is only in Christ. And so it is that Christ went to the cross. They thought they defeated Christ. The kingdom of darkness thinks that they overthrew and destroyed him on the cross. But he came forth victorious on the first day of the week. And here we see all the proof that God is true in every man, a liar. We are the church. And God has entrusted this truth to us. This truth of the gospel, the whole of the revelation of God that is in the word, God has entrusted it to us. And therefore, we must be careful to preach it, proclaim it, and live by it. We can't live as the world lives and expect for the truth to be known. We must live in the hope that is in Christ and for the glory of God. As we conclude, we see this same Jesus was handed over to the Romans. And he was crucified. In the remaining chapters in John's gospel, we'll see this play out. But we'll also see that the death that they brought upon him was only a bruising of his heel. It was not possible that Jesus should remain dead. He rose again, according to the scriptures. He defeated Satan. He crushed his head. The victory was won. The conflict that lives on until the end of the age when Jesus comes again is a conflict that will eventually cease. But the the battle's settled. The war is settled. But God, for his purposes, has decreed that the conflict continue. Let it might be clear who are the sons of God and who are the sons of men. And even in this environment, that we as the sons of God should learn to live full dependence and reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But let us remember the victory's won. It's finished. Let us live our lives in the light of this knowledge. Our battle's not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers of the air. And the weapons of our warfare, they are not carnal. They're not guns and swords and spears. They're not tanks and jets and bombs, children. The weapons of our warfare are the Word of God and prayer. We don't use the tactics of the world, pragmatism, relativism, deceit. We live by the word of God, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We live by the truth as it's revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we bow in prayer to God our Father in the name of the Lord Jesus, asking that he would grant to us to run the race before us, and to finish it to the praise and the glory of the God who saved us, even Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we look to you. We live in a world that is racked with treachery, deceit, relativism. We live in a world where the conflict seems to rage, even though the victory is won. Father, we pray that you would govern and direct us, that we would walk according to the truth and not according to lies. And Lord, we pray that you would guard our heart from discouragement and despair as we see, as at times it seems as though, those who serve Satan uh, gain the upper hand. But, Lord, we know that's not possible. For nothing comes to pass but what you have decreed, and you're accomplishing all your will in all the earth all the time. Lord, let us walk and rest in that peace. Let us live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing from our hymnals, number 242, Not All the Blood of Beasts, 242.